Welcome to the first episode of Corporate Chat Podcast. Your hosts for today are Mathis Grandchamp and myself, Loïc Meunier. We both pursue a Bachelor of Commerce in Finance at McGill University. Thanks to our sponsors, Deloitte, Cementov Development LTD, and Red Bull. Steven Sonnenstein is a Senior Managing Director at Digital Bridge Investment Management and is an accomplished telecommunication infrastructure executive with over 25 years of global mergers and acquisitions, asset management, and operations experience. Mr. Sonnenstein is responsible for the origination, evaluation, completion, and ongoing asset management of new investments on a global basis for Digital Bridge. Mr. Sonnenstein received a Bachelor's of Commerce and his CPA from McGill University. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Steven Sonnenstein. Hi, Steven. We're glad to have you on the podcast today. Let's kick off the interview and dive right into the personal and professional segment. Let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, you joined Digital Bridge in 2018 as a managing director, and before that, you were senior director at PSP Investments. Tell us a little bit about where you began your career after getting your CPA at McGill and how you rose to those positions. Sure. Um, good afternoon. Uh, so I graduated uh, McGill uh, in 96, wrote my CA exam in 99, started at Ernst & Young in 96, did five years in audit and um, touched a little bit of transaction advisory uh, <clears throat> services. And then uh, after that, I left Ernst & Young and I went to go work for um, PricewaterhouseCoopers in their M&A practice. I did M&A advisory for a couple of years there. Uh, from there, I went to do distressed advisory uh, for uh, Richter Consulting in Montreal, but I was focused on the US. Um, so that gave me like a full circle of sort of advisory. I did audit, I did M&A, I did distressed. And then after that, I went, uh, I joined Brookfield Asset Management in their um, <clears throat> infrastructure group. And uh, I also worked in their spe- special situations. Um, I did that for about four years. Um, that was very exciting. Actually, probably one of the most exciting roles I've had in my career. Really pivotal. Um, I lived for a year in South America. I spent a lot of time working in Europe, Australia, across Canada, the U.S. Had a really varied experience. This was in Brookfield's earlier days. I mean, to give you an idea, when I joined Brookfield, they only had $50 billion under management uh, relative to, uh, I think now they're somewhere in the 800 mm-hmm. range, yeah. give or take. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of the early days. Um, and uh, after uh, Brookfield, I went to go work. Uh, I went to industry for a couple of years, but that was very short lived. And then I went to work for PSP in infrastructure. Um, and while I was there, um, I did general infra, wanted to differentiate myself, wanted to do something slightly off the beaten path. And I took a chance and started looking at digital infrastructure. Um, suffice it to say, it was not met with uh, resounding excitement or uh, people didn't necessarily welcome the idea. Um, famous, uh, famous last words from uh, my boss at the time was, uh, Stephen, just because you put the word uh, uh, infrastructure uh, in the sentence doesn't make it infrastructure. So um, here we are. Fast forward, I don't know, what, 12 years, 12, 15 years later, uh, digital infrastructure is mainstream uh, very much and actually has migrated mm-hmm. from, call it, uh, you know, the top right of the risk spectrum down to the, you know, even stabilized in court. So uh, I've been with uh, Digital Bridge now coming on my sixth year, uh, coming up to my sixth year um, and uh, started out here um, as an MD when we were 
really raising the first uh, flagship fund, our first $4 billion fund. Um, so I got here towards the middle to tail end of the fundraising with some of that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was, I've been responsible for deploying about a third of the capital in fund one. Um, then we raised our second fund, which is an $8 billion fund. And I'm responsible for about a third of the capital deployments there as well. I've since moved also from managing director to senior managing director, along with a partner of mine, John Mock. Um, we just made another senior MD last year, uh, Justin Chang, who heads up our Asia practice, or Asia, you know, our Asia, a Asian uh, area of um, investment. And, um, you know, I sit on, now I sit today, I sit on the executive committee of the firm. I sit on the investment committee of the funds. Um, also have a very active role in fundraising and asset management and m and I do it all. So the full-time job, seven days Great. a week. And <laughs> you're also a board member at the Dissolotel Faculty of Management of That Miguel. is true, that is true. <laughs> that is a volunteer position. Yeah. Um, I was uh, lucky enough to be invited to sit on the board. Uh, it's been very interesting. It's very different board setting. It's a very different board setting from what I'm used to or what I've been used to in the past. You know, philanthropic boards or not for not for profit boards are very different. Um, let's just say the objectives and the way you run things are nuanced. It's not mm -hmm. so not as results driven and KPI driven as uh, operating boards are. All right. Um, and Continuing on the on this segment, what would you say was the biggest challenge in your in your career? Uh, leaving advisory and going to the buy side. Yeah, going to, you know, principal investing. It's a very different mm -hmm. mindset. You know, as a as an advisor, you just give advice, you produce a report, and then you leave, and nothing really <laughs> happens after that. You know, if you're lucky, and the client you're advising continues to uh, to need your services, you'll get repeat engagements. But that's pretty much it. Yeah, moving to the buy side, it's not just under, you know, you're underwriting an asset that you will live and die by. And I have a, you know, I have a saying, which is, you know, any idiot can buy a company. The true measure of success is when you sell it. Right. So it's what happens from the moment you've acquired the company. Well, you sell it. That matters. Mm -hmm. Buying it. Anybody can do that. And in most cases, it's, you know, who's the asshole who paid the most. Um, so it doesn't necessarily make you a good investor. It's how you manage through the ebbs and flows and the investment life cycle of the of the company you acquire that will really determine how successful you have been, right? So, you know, we've had a few realizations. Um, I've had a few realizations here at, at Digital Bridge, which have been very successful. But, you know, we still have 28 portfolio companies that we own, that we manage day to day. And not every company does amazingly all the time, surprisingly. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things to manage on a day to day basis. And, uh, you know, there's what you can control and there's what you can't. Right. Macro factors come into play, interest rate, volatility, uh, you know, fluctuations in economic performance uh, will definitely impact both your business and, you know, how it will perform. What would you say the biggest challenges with your more hands on approach on the buy side as opposed to just advising? Well, you're not just buying an asset or a set of assets. You're buying a management team. You're buying a company, or you're trying to create one, right? So, when you when you enter when human behavior enters into the equation, you're dealing with different personalities, and you know everybody has a certain way about doing things. Um, and you need to you need to figure out how to get the best results out of people, right? You know, 
want everyone to be their best self or the best version of themselves. And, and the true measure of, of success in managing people is figuring out how to get people to excel and how to really rise to their full potential. You know, the majority of the CEOs, if not all of the CEOs that we work with or hire, are people that are entrepreneurial in nature and very ambitious, very aggressive, very type A. And, you know, you can't just let them run rampant or run rogue and go and buy and do whatever they want. You have to, you have to channel that energy for, for, for the greater good of the business. It's not always what they want to do. Great, thank you. And before we conclude this part of the conversation, I'd like to touch on your work-life balance. Um, how is your current work-life balance and how did it evolve uh, through the course of your career? What is work-life balance? So, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, look, my work-life balance, I, I don't think I'm ever off. Um, the senior leadership of this firm and pretty much any firm I've ever worked for is always on. It's a choice that you make. Um, whether you're a man or a woman working in this type of business on the principal side of investing, it, it's very demanding. Um, just because you go to sleep doesn't necessarily mean that everybody in all of the businesses that you run go to sleep, right? So depending on time zones and where you're working and travel, it will definitely impact your ability to, to uh, take some downtime. But you know what? It's about managing, not about as much managing your downtime as it is managing your stress. I think that's probably the most important thing. So, you know, eating right, exercising, is so fundamentally important to what I do. And it wasn't always like that. Um, the beginning, at the beginning of my career and up until Probably about 10 years ago, I was very unhealthy, weighed about 45 pounds more than I do today. So, <laughs> yeah, it's stress, travel, poor eating habits, lack of exercise. And you can't do that. You just you won't be successful. Your mind won't be in the right place. Mm -hmm. But I make time for my family. I make time for my kids um, as much as I can. I wish I could. I wish it could be more, obviously. But you know, as you're trying to build something and we're still trying to build a business and grow it, it demands a lot of your time. I travel close to you know, 180, 200 days a year um, globally. So it's not just a, you know, it's not a Montreal, Toronto trip. Um, it's, you know, I, I, I oversee investments in Latin America on the West Coast of US, in Europe, in Canada, and I'm based in Florida. So. Mm -hmm. You do the math, you do the math in the map and you'll see how much I'm bouncing around. Yeah. I do. Um, so you mentioned um, that you work around seven days a week and uh, you're on the investment committee. But what would you say? What aspect of your job takes most of your time? Is it the traveling aspect of it? No, I'd say it's. Um, well, it's, it, it evolves, right? It, it, it moves. If you know you're if you're in a live deal situation that will really monopolize the majority of your time as you're trying to get something done and get it across the line. But the most time consuming thing that I do is probably the asset management side of the business, right? You know, I oversee five port codes. So five port codes will have uh, monthly, you know, there'll be weekly meetings, monthly meetings for each of them. There'll be quarterly board meetings for each of them. So you just do the numbers, you know five times, 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 it adds up and that takes up a lot of time. And it's not just, you know, get on the call and um, listen to what people have to say. It's being present, being involved, understanding, engaging with your management teams. It takes a lot of time. Um, that's that's a big aspect of it. The, I'd say another thing that takes up a considerable amount of time is managing 
the people internally, you know, whether it's the executive committee or uh, the various committees that I sit on and various internal calls and internal processes that I'm involved with demands a lot of time. We have 200 employees around the world that operate in three, four different time zones. A lot to try and help it manage and coordinate. And we have a big team and we have a lot of people that oversee this. It certainly does not fall on me, but you know, being a part of that takes up a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. And now moving on to the market segment, um, could you walk us through the area of expertise of Digital Bridge? Sure. So Digital Bridge is a specialist infrastructure investor. We focus on digital infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So we specifically invest very, to break it down very simplistically, we invest in um, tower networks, uh, data centers, uh, fiber networks, small cell networks, and uh, I'd say extensions of that. So we have like ground lease aggregation strategies as well. Um, uh, we'll do outdoor media infrastructure. <clears throat> and you know we're looking at things that are sort of tangential to what we do, but ultimately that's our focus. So we started out our first, fund was uh, North America and Europe. Our second fund added uh, Asia or Southeast Asia specifically. And our third fund will be pretty much the same like our second one with maybe a slightly lar larger focus into Asia as we're seeing more opportunity there. So, um, you know, our investments today sit across the Americas, North and South Europe and Southeast Asia. We have a strong presence and we're starting to build up our further presence in Asia. We have an office in Singapore, London, York and Florida. Mm -hmm. so today, and, sorry, um, sorry, just to yeah, round it out. I apologize. Ahead, sure. um, so today, as I mentioned, 28 portfolio companies, 72 billion under management um, across various strategies. I sit and oversee, uh, along with my partners, uh, the flagship strategies, which is probably half of our AUM. And the balances in other strategies uh, that we have, we have a mid-market strategy, just general infra. We have a credit strategy. Uh, we have a hedge fund strategy as well. But, or actually it's probably two thirds of our AUM is in the flagship strategies. And we have a core strategy as well, which sort of fits into the same bucket. Mm -hmm. So speaking about your, your investments and your funds, uh, how do you think will AI affect the digital bridge area of expertise? Well, I don't think we're going to replace our analysts anytime soon with AI. Um, mm -hmm. But what I do believe is actually AI is um, is one of the major um, uh, drivers of growth in our in our business and in our sector. There's two main thematics actually that are driving the investment into digital infrastructure today. One is 5G, which I'm sure all of you have heard about, mm -hmm. um, and that you know is basically the rolling out of this. Um, new uh, low latency or zero latency network capabilities globally. It's going to require probably somewhere in the vicinity of $2 trillion of investment or, uh, over the next four to five years. So if you think about that, that's about $400 billion of fresh investment into the sector. And that'll come by way of you know network densification, small cells, uh, fiber, fiber strength, uh, network strengthening, increased data center capacity, um, as well as you know uh, creation of um, Closer, closer compute, right? So you'll you'll want you'll see the development of edge data center compute as you roll out 5G. The second major um, uh, driver for growth in our sector is uh, is AI. 
the amount of compute that AI is going to require in order to um, bring itself to be mainstream, as we all hope it will, um, is going to be multiples of what the current cloud market is. So cloud today is about a $300 billion market. Um, AI today already is 300 billion and we haven't even started. Like it's just, we're just getting started. So the amount of compute that's gonna be required in order to deliver AI capabilities is massive. So that's why you see all of this massive investment from the likes of Microsoft, Google, Amazon. Um, <clears throat> you know, everybody's investing in it um, and you need massive data center capacity. You need a lot of fiber backhaul and fiber connectivity. It's gonna require incremental investment into the sector, probably to the multiples of what the current market is today. So it's hundreds of billions of dollars that's gonna be required. Interesting, uh, thank you for that. Uh, again, for your for your funds, can you walk us through an example of a deal, uh, or a merger, an acquisition, or a sale you supervised at Digital Bridge? Sure. Um, one of the probably uh, earliest and most interesting deals that um, I did was the creation of a new subsector in our um, in our uh, in our landscape, so to speak. Um, I basically, along with uh, my team, created something called outdoor media infrastructure, which is the investment, the investing in um, billboard infrastructure. So your traditional paper and paste billboard is a piece of land and a um, metallic structure. And then ultimately you have a customer facing or public facing board, which is traditionally is paper and paste. And I'm sure all of, you know, everyone's seen these, they're on the sides of highways everywhere. Uh, and what we did is we focused on investing in this. We looked at investing in this sector over a period of probably a year and identified um, uh, an opportunity to invest in a subset of of uh, of the outdoor advertising space. And that is to focus solely on uh, roadside. So what we did is we created a company uh, back to management team to invest in roadside billboard infrastructure. So we invested in the lands and the actual structure of the billboards. Um, but did not run the public facing side of the business. That's the advertising side. So in this instance, our customers were the large advertisers. So the likes of JCCO, Clear Channel, um, you know, in the US we have something, we have a company called Outfront or uh, uh, <clears throat> Lamar in Europe, it's, you know, global and, and the like. Um, and what we did is we built this business up from scratch and created a massive portfolio of over 3,000 sites. Now, the digital aspect of it is what we did is we acquired traditional paper and paste um, portfolios of assets, and then we digitized them. What we would do is take a traditional paper and paste billboard. We would digitize it by uh, investing and installing a digital screen that would allow our customers to go from advertising one product or one service every two weeks to advertising six to 10 per minute, right? Okay. So that uplift, right? Mm -hmm. uh, based on how you cycle through it, increases your revenue six to six to 10 times. Um, and as a result, we saw our rents on these sites um, basically go up by uh, a massive multiple of six to seven times. And that was the value creation proposition that we put forward. So we, we built a business that started out with a million pounds of billboard cash flow and by the time we sold it we were at a run rate of 50 million oh, wow. pounds of billboard cash flow including uh, the book but not built sold it for a a very nice return um, almost 30 percent 
in two and a half years. So it's a great investment, um, a huge success for the team and a true testament to the work that we put in because we spent a lot of time actually underwriting the thesis, really delved, delved into understanding the market, understanding all of the um, uh, all of the various risk factors and elements that would go into making this business a success. I'd say the single greatest part of it um, that made it a success is the management team that we invested in. And, you know, it's investing in them, nurturing them, working alongside them, building the business. So super interesting again, thank you for that. I bet you guys have investment partners sometimes. And how do you go about selecting those investment partners when uh, acquiring new companies or investing in, in, in companies? The one word answer is very carefully. Uh, <laughs> The um, honestly, it really depends. We try to partner with people strategically. So, in essence, if we're going to go and partner with a competing, you know, a competing GP or a strategic investor, um, there's got to be a rhyme or reason to it. You know, we generally don't like to do that. Um, typically, you know, if we're investing with a, a a strategic partner, it's because somebody who, you know, let's say, for example. Uh, we invested in GD Towers, or which is the acquisition of Deutsche Telekom's tower assets. We did that in partnership with Brookfield, and Deutsche Telekom still owns 50% of the assets, right? So as a result, that's a I have a strategic and I have a financial partner there. <clears throat> and there's, you know, given the size of the transaction and the nature of the business, it made a lot of sense to do that at that time. But Predominantly, what we try to do as we acquire larger businesses is partner with our existing LPs and have them come and invest alongside us and offer them co-invest so that they can benefit from a direct exposure to anything that we're looking at. Great, thank you. And how does being a publicly traded company influence your investments or your funding? Not at all. It has nothing to do with it. Um, the 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 public company um, owns the uh owns the the how should i say owns the gp but ultimately uh any of the investment decisions as it pertains to the flagship funds or any of the strategies therein reside with the investment committees of those funds the public side of it has nothing to do with it we just happen to be a publicly listed um investment manager great thank you and how is the current m a environment evolving with the increasing interest rates um, especially in the telecommunication infrastructure well, you've seen, if you look at the public comps, they've come down quite a bit um, as they've come under pressure. But I would say private private companies have remained relatively resilient in the current environment. I mean, valuations have come off somewhat, but not quite to the same level as, in, you know, if you look at the public comps. Um, and a lot of that has to do with uh, the ability of private companies to have incremental leverage. Uh, relative to their public uh, peers on the one hand and two, uh, the relative growth rates that we see on the public on the private side are uh, far superior to what our public uh, peers are seeing and actually delivering. Right. Um, before we, we wrap up our discussions on market, let's, let's just explore one more thing. Uh, during your time at PSP Investment, and I think right now uh, you, you just mentioned it, you're supervising uh, deals that are made out of North America. Um, how different is your approach from an investment perspective on that? So just to be clear, I oversee assets in North America, LATAM and Europe. Um, mm -hmm. And I do have, you know, I, I've underwritten assets in Southeast Asia as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the approach 
the approach differs from market to market. You know, regulation does play a role. Um, you know, work environment, business environment, legal environment will play a role in uh, wherever you invest. And you have to be cognizant of that as you sort of look at these different markets and you um, uh, and, and in your approach and in investing there. Um, but by and large, we underwrite to some core principles um, which have remained the same irrespective of where or how we invest. And, you know, those are the four cornerstones of our investing thesis, which are one, it's the management team, first and foremost, um, you know, it's all about the people that manage the assets. You can buy the best assets in the world. If you do not have a good management team, you don't have the right management team, you're going to destroy value. Uh, two, um, you know, high barriers to entry. You want basically something that is non-replicable in nature that has does have an infrastructure-like um, uh, tendency to it. Um, you want high credit quality of your counterparties, which is going to drive a lot of the value of the business because if you have a you know, sub-investment grade, uh, uh, you know, customer for your, if your customers are sub-investment grade in your business, you know, your ability to, one, lever the business is going to be limited. Your ability to grow and, you know, defer risk, defray risk is going to be limited. And that's going to drive a lot of, um, of, the, uh, <clears throat> of the value of that business that you're looking to create. And then last but not least is, you know, you want to have basically, I think I sort of touched on this, it's a little bit about barriers to entry, but it's also about, you know, what is what is the nature of this business? Is it something that is, you know, high need, high necessity, something that is hard to replicate in nature, right? So if you're if you're acquiring a um, you know, a tower network and or building one, once you've built it out, it's very hard to replicate. You can't just go in and tomorrow and all of a sudden install seven and a half thousand towers in a country overnight. It's gonna take you years to do it. But ultimately, you know, as you build it up stage step by step, you're creating that protective mode around your business. Great, thank you. Um, you so you mentioned uh, basing your decisions on principles. Do you also have specific indicators, whether it be financial or economic, that you base your decision off of? Yeah, of course. We need to make a return. <laughs> um, look, ultimately, you know, we've promised uh, mid-teens returns for our LPs. Um, you know, our third fund is going to promise uh, to deliver slightly higher returns than that. Um, but ultimately, we will manage invest. We will invest in assets and build up our portfolio such that we're driving towards that overall return. Right. So we're going to have some assets that are going to be higher risk, higher return. Some that are going to be a lower risk, lower return in order to create a balanced portfolio, both from a risk perspective, from a geographic perspective and from a sectorial sector perspective as well. Perfect. So moving on to the mentorship and guidance uh, segment, how big of an impact do people you surround yourself with make an impact in, in your career? Oh, dude, it's like that's everything. You're only as strong as your weakest link, right? You know, it's like such a catchphrase, but it's mm -hmm. so true. If we have people in our team that aren't pulling their weight or that's not performing at 110%, then you're not performing at 110% as a team. Uh, you know, I've built up a lot of, uh, loyalty with uh, the individuals that I work with. Um, I have some people that have been working with me for over 10 years and have followed me from previous uh, jobs. Um, so, you know, that in and of itself is a testament to the success of this firm because it's, you know, these people that are driving the business. I'm at, the, you know, I'm at the top of the totem pole. So my ability to create value is only as good as everyone else's ability to work hard and to deliver value as a team. 
And what would you say are, are some common traits um, in the people that um, are successful in high finance uh, in positions like yours? I would say uh, independent thinkers, people that are actually able not just to put the work, you know, just not just about putting the work in and building the model and you know producing a return analysis it's about being able to think outside the box and being able to understand what you're analyzing take the market intelligence the market data the analytics um take the strategic aspect of it um and take the strategy of the business and try and mesh mesh all this together you know a lot of the discussions we have are in and around strategy and you know what strategy are we uh, pursuing and where are we pursuing it? Um, and I value the input all the way down to the analyst. I want everyone to speak up, may not listen to their opinion, but I want to hear it. Great. It takes people um, a few. It takes people a few years till I start listening to their opinion, but I still yeah. want to hear it. I want people to contribute. <laughs> so how how should the students go about finding an internship? Uh, with our firm or in general? More precisely, your firm, of course. Look, we run an internship program right now. Uh, every summer, we have probably 20 or so interns that'll join us and spend the summer here working through various projects that we have on the go. Um, it's a fairly formal process. So, you know, I can always put you guys in touch with our chief people officer and we can get that going, or I can help shepherd that forward. Um, I'd say the biggest thing or for us is we need people to be able to move quickly and think on their feet. Um, you know, an intern is not going to be asked to make an investment decision, but they are going to ask to be to run a lot of analytics and prepare a lot of presentation materials, and that's important. Then at the end of the summer, we actually have our interns uh, present a case study to the investment committee, which pretty much determines whether they get asked back or not. Um, <laughs> so. It's uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, we've seen some really talented individuals come through here. Uh, I've been thoroughly impressed with what the schools are producing these days. Um, just because individ, you know, it, when you when you get an application and all you see on a piece of paper is a 4.0, you don't really know. Like, okay, so the person's a good student, you know. Yeah. And they actually carry on a conversation. Do they know how to dress and talk in a business setting environment? And these are things that people are not necessarily taught in school and are fairly. Um, uh, have become maybe less important in people's eyes, but I still hold them in very high value. I have to know if I hire somebody, I'm going to be able to leave them in a room with either a target company that we're looking to acquire, an advisor, or one of our management company, uh, one of our management teams. Right? And you know, we do have examples of individuals that sit in a room, and you know, an associate will turn around and have a conversation with a. CEO and think that the CEO works for him or her. I, I listen, I've seen it all. Um, <laughs> let's just put it this way. That's the wrong approach. <laughs> Don't do that. You know, our management teams are our partners, and that is first and foremost the yeah. most important thing that people need to understand. We are nothing without them. And they are nothing without us. It's a partnership. We're not just the dumb money that shows up and backs the company. We help drive the strategy of the business. And the management teams run those businesses for us day to day. If I, you know, if the CEO walks out the door and I have to go run a data center, I probably could get by, but I'm not running it like he or she does, right? That's something that nobody should ever forget.
Great. And what would be um, your best advice to someone graduating from university right now? I would say focus is probably the best advice I could give somebody graduating now. People need to decide what they want to do. This whole generalist approach to life is great, and people should gain various experiences throughout their career, do something in a, for, from a generalist perspective as they start their careers, but look for, a, look for something to focus on and become the best at that, and that's how you will create value for yourself. Uh, would you have any, let's say, special tips for someone looking to break into iFinance? Yeah, go go spend two years at an investment bank getting the shit kicked out of you and then give me a call. Okay. Um, and now moving on to the rapid fire questions. Um, in one sentence, how would you define success? In one sentence, um, show up every day. If you don't plan to show up, don't bother. Mm -hmm. And what is the best piece of advice that anyone has ever given you? Uh, know your audience. How would you describe your career in one word? Uh, perseverance. And you talked about the GPA, so I want to touch on that. Uh, on a scale of one to 10, how important would you say your GPA is as a student? It's a very loaded question. I would say that uh, you guys hold it in very high regard, and so does the world of academia. And I would say a lot of companies and investment banks hold it in high regard and high importance. but. For me personally and for us here, uh, you can have, you know, a good GPA is important and shows discipline and rigor in your academic studies, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good investor or somebody that's going to work, you know, work well in the workforce. Um, so, you know, GPA is not everything. Yeah, you need to be a well-rounded individual that can actually perform and think and carry on a conversation. And if you wouldn't be in the financial industry, what would you be doing instead? Oh dear lord. I'd probably be I'd probably be in real estate. Yeah. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> I love real estate. We'll take it. We'll take it. So lastly, Steven, do you have one last word for our audience? That is probably the one best piece of advice I could give to any of the students coming out of university. Don't be afraid to go outside of your comfort zone. Don't be afraid to take a chance, take a risk, do something different. Um, because you never know where it'll take you. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Welcome. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, feel free to drop a comment or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or our social medias. Have a good one and see you next time. The sole purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform our listeners. It is by no means a substitute for professional guidance by qualified experts. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute financial or other professional advice or services. Instead, we encourage you to discuss your career options, as well as financial undertakings with other professionals who specialize in wealth, securities, and asset management, or any other field in financial services. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at a personal and individual risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The views expressed on this platform are personal opinions and only, and should not be construed as financial advice for a given situation or from a given institution. While all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for specific circumstances, and information may become outdated over time. No firm, nor any company providing financial support endorses or opposes any particular view or tools discussed in this podcast. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. 
advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted towards the content of this podcast is forbidden. This podcast may not be edited, modified, or redistributed. The Corporate Chat Podcast has no liability for any personal activities in connection with this podcast or for personal use of this podcast in connection with personal websites, computers, or playing devices. Moreover, the Corporate Chat Podcast makes no warranty that this podcast or the server that makes it available is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. McGill University and our sponsors expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.